just pray that God would help us to think about that passage tonight. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, please give us clear minds and open hearts to uh, understand and believe your word and apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I go jogging or when I go on long trips in the car by myself, what I like to do, that's not me, what I like to do is listen to podcasts. Now, my podcasts fall into three main categories. There are Christian podcasts I listen to, there are sports podcasts I listen to, usually cricket, and then there are history podcasts. Now, without any shadow of a doubt, the best history podcast I listen to is one called The Rest is History. It features two English historians, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, you can see them pictured there, and uh, they are both highly informed about history, they've got these plummy English accents, and they're very funny, they bounce off each other really quite nicely. And um, they can talk about anything from the rise and fall of the Roman Empire through to the history of James Bond movies. Uh, I'm a real fan, I think Eddie Stocks put me onto it in the first place. My wife is a member of the Rest is History Club. Wow, how good's that? And um, when our family was overseas this year, we went, Trina and I went and saw them at a live show in London, talking about history. And there we are at the show, Uh, it, it was really good. Now, I don't know what your experience of history is like at school or or was like at school, but history is often very interesting and it's extremely important. History explains to us why things are the way they are today. Uh, History can also give us good examples from the past, which might give us ideas for the present. And also, uh, it tells us of the mistakes that have been made in the past, mistakes that we'll want to avoid in the present. And if we take these lessons on board, it's what's known as learning the lessons of history. Now, there was a philosopher, a guy called George Santayana, who once said, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Conversely, if you do remember the past, you can avoid the mistakes that people have made in the past. So, does humanity have a propensity for learning from past mistakes? The answer is often no. Let me give you a classic example. A classic example is the failure to learn that you should not get caught invading Russia in winter. So, 1812, Napoleon invades Russia with 600,000 soldiers. Winter hits, temperatures plummet, and only 10,000 of the 600,000 made it back home. Lesson learned? Nope. 1941, and despite owning several books about Napoleon, Hitler decides to invade Russia. Takes a bit longer than expected, winter hits, temperatures plummet, and 775,000 German soldiers were casualties. Now, this failure to learn from history also functions at a personal level, sadly, as well. So, sometimes people may be uh, depressed and they think, I know what will help me, I'll drink, I'll have alcohol, despite the fact that it never works and it never works for them as well. Uh, German philosopher George Hegel once famously said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Now, that's a bit pessimistic, but sometimes it's true. 
Now, in today's passage, sadly, we are going to see that God's people have not learned from history. They have fallen into the habit of making the same old mistakes that they've made in the past. And that is that when life gets difficult or disappointing or a bit dull, they fall into spiritual apathy. Now, that's a mistake uh, that Christians have made over the years, many Christians make today, and it may be one that we are liable to making as well. Now, if you want to avoid the mistake of falling into spiritual apathy when things get difficult, disappointing or dull, tonight's passage is hopefully a good one for you. Now, as you may know, we're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets from the Old Testament. Uh, We're up to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. We're going to spend three weeks in this book and this is the first of those weeks. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 9. I hope many of you have picked up uh, an outline on the way in. You can also see on the screen. Firstly, I'm going to introduce you to Malachi in chapter 1, verse 1. Then we're going to look at God's love for His people, for Israel, chapter 1, verse 2 through to 5. And then for the rest of the passage, we're going to look at Israel's love, note the inverted commas, for God. So, let's start by learning a little bit about Malachi, very briefly. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, if you've got your devices or your Bibles there. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, not much is known about Malachi the person, but we can work out from the book and the context that it was probably uh, taking place around about 450 BC. God's people have returned from the exile in Babylon to the promised land and that's at that time that Malachi is prophesying. He's sometimes referred to as a post-exilic prophet, post-exilic, post-exile, after the exile, if you catch my drift. Now, let me put Malachi in a bit of a bigger picture context. Let's look at the history of Israel in a nutshell. Many years before Malachi, God in His mercy chose and called Abraham to be his person and then Abraham and his family got bigger. About a thousand years before Malachi, God in his mercy rescued his people from Egypt, that's the Exodus and then through Moses, he gave them instructions on how to live and if they lived that way, they would be blessed, if they didn't live that way, then they wouldn't be blessed. But right after that, God's people will continually reject God and he judged them and they'd say, please forgive us, and then God in His mercy would save them. And that would happen time and time and time again. God keeps showing His mercy when they turn back, um, right through the time of the judges. Then the kings come along, Solomon does the wrong thing, Israel is split in two, there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they repeatedly turn away from God, but God in His mercy, yet again, keeps sending prophets along. So, He sends prophets um, like Amos and Habakkuk, who we looked at in the last few weeks in church, but they don't listen, God sends off the people in the southern kingdom to Babylon, they're in exile in Babylon and that was really bad, really tough for God's people and if you remember the sermon on the book of Lamentations, you remember how tough it was for them, but they, they turn to God and God in His mercy brings them back from Babylon to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple, thanks to the prophet Haggai and some others and we looked at Haggai last week, So, by Malachi's time, we finally got up to him, they are back in Jerusalem, they've got their temple there and no doubt, they would have looked back at that history, seen God's mercy, seen God's care, seen God's love and they would now be enthusiastically serving God in Jerusalem, right? Wrong! (laughs) 
as we'll see, by the time of Malachi, God has once again been sidelined by apathy. They've not learned the lessons of history, Hegel was right, the lesson of history is that we so often don't learn from history. Let's look at this in a bit more detail now. Point two, God's love for Israel and we're going to be looking at verses two to five. It starts, God says, verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, He's speaking to His people. Now, that should have been patently clear to God's people, I mean, I've just given you a potted history, how He's continually forgiving, He's continually showing mercy, He's chosen them, etc, etc. But then we read in the second half of verse two, that they say, God's people, they say, but you ask, how have you loved us? God's love for them is doubted. Wow, you might think, that's a little bit ungrateful, isn't it? They seem to have forgotten their history. Now, it's often the case that we can forget what God has done for us in the past and we just focus on perhaps the difficulties or the disappointments or the dullness of the present. That's what people so often tend to do and I can only imagine that must be what God's people did here. I mean, if they forgot about their entire history and they just looked at what life was like at the time of Malachi, they might have thought, well, we've got the temple, but this temple isn't as big as the old temple we used to have. And we're back in Jerusalem, but we're not as great a country as we were back in the time of King David and King Solomon. And if they just focused on that, they might be a little bit disappointed and despondent, forgetting all the times that God has shown them mercy. Now, God decides that He's going to show them how He does love them. How do you think God would go about showing that He loves His people? How would, you th how would you do it if you were God? How does He choose to demonstrate it? Well, verse 2 continues, God says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Wow, is that how you would have answered the question? Well, quick explanation. God's people, Israel, were descended from Jacob. Jacob uh, had a brother called Esau and that his descendants were called the Edomites and the Edomites were the neighbours of the Israelites. Now, historically, the Edomites don't really like the Israelites. In fact, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem in fairly recent history, the Edomites were allies of the Babylonians. So, there they, there's been quite a bit of friction between the two. Now, if, you're old, if you know your Old Testament, you'd know that when uh, Jacob and Esau were born, uh, God, in His grace, chose Jacob rather than his brother Esau to inherit God's blessing. Why did God choose Jacob rather than Esau? Was Jacob any better than Esau? Probably not. It was an act of grace. God, in His grace, chose Jacob, it was an undeserved gift. And if you look throughout the history of the Bible, God is always showing, showing grace, He's always being undeservedly good to His people. Now, when He goes on to talk about Esau and Edom here, let me tell you what the point isn't, I think, and what the point is of the following verses. Let me tell you what the point isn't. Uh, the next verses aren't trying to discuss how that little bit, Esau I hated, how that can square with, say, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, or even Ezekiel 33.11, where God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather that they would turn from their evil ways and live. It's not trying to square those two ideas, so I'm not going to get into it in this sermon, but if you're interested in that, please talk to me after the service. 
The point that is being made here is that God is answering the question, how have you loved us? And God says, basically, because I've chosen you guys, I've chosen you, I chose you, that's how you know that I love you. Um, Perhaps if someone was married and there was a husband and wife and one of them was tempted to doubt whether their spouse actually loved them, one of the many things the spouse might say was, well, look, you know, I chose you, didn't I? I chose you, implied, I didn't choose anyone else, it was you, you're the one I love. And God's saying, you know, I chose you uh, as evidence that He loved them. Now, uh, today, we might want to remind ourselves of and recognise God's gracious love to us at various times. You see, if we're believers and we're going through a difficult time at some stage, perhaps life is disappointing or life is difficult or life is dull, uh, it's helpful to know that God loves us. Now, in the Old Testament, when life was difficult, disappointing or dull, they could profitably look back on the time when God chose them or when God rescued them from Egypt or whatever like that. What can we look back upon today when we want to convince ourselves that God loves us? Well, we could do a few things. We could look back on the time when God chose us, if we're followers of Jesus, but I think even more compelling for me anyway, is we can look back on Jesus' death for us on the cross. Because Jesus' self-sacrificial, voluntary, sin-bearing death on the cross is the greatest act of love in the history of the cosmos. And if we're a Christian, God has shown His love to us by doing that. Do you ever wonder whether you're loved by God? Reflect on that. Now, let me be realistic here. I suspect that sometimes, when we're going through difficulties, disappointments or dullness, thinking, oh, well, Jesus died for me, we might, in a bad frame of mind, sometimes think, oh, that was 2,000 years ago, what has that got to do with now, right? Um, can I say that sometimes it's difficult to actually own that as a proof of God's love for us? Um, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But with God, all things is possible and Jesus' death for us can be an incredible comfort and help for us when we're going through hard times. Let me give you a good example. It's the 19th century. Uh, there's a guy who was a lawyer and as you would know, law is a noble, uh, selfless profession. Um, he was a senior partner of a large American law firm and his name was Horatio Spafford. He was married to a lady called Anna and they had four daughters and um, he was a Christian man and he was a friend of a famous American evangelist called Dwight L. Moody. Moody was sort of like the Billy Graham of the 19th century. Anyway, so uh, Spafford and his family thought, let's go on a holiday to the UK, uh, Moody's going to be speaking over there, we might listen to him speak a bit, we'll have a holiday. But just before they're about to leave, uh, Spafford is, has to stay behind because of some business things he has to deal with, as I understand it, and so his wife and four daughters get on the boat to cross the Atlantic to go to the UK. You know this isn't going to end well, don't you? Right, 22nd of no November, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship in which his family is travelling collided with another vessel and uh, 226 people were killed, including all four of his daughters. Annie, aged 12, Maggie, aged seven, Bessie, aged four, and 18-month-old Tanita. His wife, however, survived and got to the other, to the UK. She sent a telegram to Spafford, then this was before the internet, so just telegrams, and the message was, saved alone. Uh, soon afterwards, Spafford was on a ship 
going to the UK himself to see his wife, no doubt to comfort each other uh, at this horrible time. Now, when Spafford was on a boat sailing across the Atlantic to, to meet his grieving wife, uh, he was, I think he was told by the ship's captain when they were passing that part of the Atlantic where the, the accident had happened on the previous ship. And Spafford, a Christian man, was moved to start to write a famous Christian song. Don't know whether you know the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, Spafford wrote that. First verse reads as follows. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, how on earth could this man at this location be inspired to write that? That's incredible. Well, I think the second verse gives us a clue. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed His own blood for my soul. I think it's the death of Christ which reassured him of God's love for him and his family and clearly was hugely helpful to him at this horrendous time that I hope no one here will ever have to experience anything like. But I think reflecting back on what Christ did for him reassured him of God's love in this most horrible of times. Anyway, back to the Old Testament. So God reassures the Israelites, I love you, I chose you. What can we say of Israel's love, in inverted commas, for God. Chapter 1, verse 6 through to 2, verse 9. Sadly, as we'll see, we can't say much that is good. Let's look at verse 6. A son, a son honours his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. Now, it seems to me that there are two problems here for the, for the priests in Israel and I think probably the Israelites as well. One, they have an attitude problem and two, they have an action problem. Let's look at the attitude problem. Consider what the following interchange sounds like. Verse 2, God says, I have loved you, Israel, how have you loved us? Verse 6, God says, you've shown contempt for my name. Israel says, how have we shown contempt for your name? Verse 7, God says, you've offered defiled food on my altar. Israel says, how have we defiled you? That ringing any bells? Let, let me try this, compare, compare it to this. Your room is untidy. How is my room untidy? Could you mow the lawn this weekend? Why should I mow the lawn this weekend? Can you be kinder to your sister? When was I unkind to your sister? Sorry, that, this works better with a morning congregation than an evening congregation. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's similar. It's, it's, it's that sort of attitude. It's, it's bad. Join the dots. Enough said. Okay, so the attitude's a problem. What about their actions? What's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, part of the way that people related to God, this is in Old Testament times, was through sacrifices. You'd bring an animal, you'd sacrifice it in certain circumstances. And you were supposed to bring good animals for sacrifice. So, if you read in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 1 and 22, you were supposed to bring a male without defect, a good one, okay? But basically, it seems to be that people of Israel have been bringing lousy sacrifices to God. Malachi 1.8 says they brought blind animals, lame animals, diseased animals, and the priests seem to be accepting these animals. You can almost picture it. Imagine you're an Israelite shepherd out in your field thinking, boy, I've got to take a sacrifice to Jerusalem to the temple. 
and he surveys his flocks and he says, well, I could take Rex over there, but he's a really good breeding sheep. No, I don't think I'll take him. Or I could take Tiffany over there, but she, she looks magnificent. I think she might win at the Bethlehem show uh, this year. I don't want to take her. Um, oh, but there's old Scruffy over there. He was mauled by wolves last night. He's half dead. I might take him. I'll put him out of his misery anyway. See, by taking Scruffy, he's not making a sacrifice, is he? What you're doing is getting rid of something he doesn't want. What do we call getting rid of something we don't want? Putting out the garbage. That's what the Israelite sacrifices were like it seems, throwing out the garbage. Now, did the priests say, oh, well, you can't bring, you can't bring animals like that? Well, they seem to be quite happy to go ahead with these fifth-rate sacrifices. They don't seem to care. In fact, we get the impression in the passage that the, for the priests, their ministry in the temple has become a bit of a bore. Do you notice in verse 13, as the priests are thinking about their ministry in the temple, they say, oh, what a burden. Right? Now, I've added the oh bit in, but it just says what a burden in the passage. They seem to be pretty disinterested. Now, what do you think God makes of all this? Verse 10, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. He recognises them for what they are. They're rubbish, they're lousy sacrifices. And the priests themselves come further under the microscope, if you read on it in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Now, chemistry, we talked about history, let's talk about chemistry. I think one of the coolest things in chemistry is litmus paper. I mean, who does not like litmus paper? You know, blue litmus paper turns red in acid, thank you, who was there, well done. And red litmus paper turns blue in base or alkaline, oh, yeah, that's great, base or alkaline solutions. Now, uh, how can we test how our service of God is going. Well, I think chapter 1 verse 8 gives us something of a spiritual litmus paper test. Now, back in the Old Testament, in terms of sacrificing animals at the temple, uh, Malachi says, try offering those animals to the governor. Would he be pleased with you? You know, clearly a governor wouldn't be pleased in getting those sorts of animals given to him. So, let's think about our relationship with God, not in terms of how we serve the governor, but let's imagine you've all got jobs, okay? You've all got jobs and you're thinking about your boss. How are you going to treat your boss in your working context? So, I'm asking you to install your metaphorical brain here. Okay, so, how do you feel your prayer and Bible reading is going in your Christian life? Okay, let's go into metaphor mode. Your boss says, in this job, we're going to have to have daily meetings. So I have to talk to you about various things. You can ask me your concerns and questions. We need to discuss this together each day. This is in your job. And you say to your boss, oh, sorry, boss, I've really got too much work on, I'm afraid. Um, also, I've got shopping to do and I've got to pick up the kids from school this afternoon. And really, I'm, frankly, I'm quite tired and I'd rather sit down and watch the TV or play on my Xbox. How do you think the boss is going to respond to that? Hmm, interesting. Another one. Let's consider uh, the priority we get to give to meeting with God's people regularly, say, in, in, in church. Okay, let's go into metaphor mode. Your boss says to you in your job, okay, in this job here we have a weekly team meeting, we've got to get together and discuss things and inspire each other on in this, in this, in this job, and you just don't turn up, or you turn up when you haven't got anything better on. How do you think your boss is going to view that? Okay, consider the thought you give to God when you enjoy His many good gifts. You see, everything good in this world ultimately comes from God. So, if you enjoy a, a good meal or a good movie 
or a good book or a good play or you, you have to go to a good party or have a nice meal with people, you know, dinner, dinner party, whatever. Does it ever occur to you to thank God for it? Okay, let's go back into metaphor mode. Your boss at work uh, gives you an incredible gift of appreciation or perhaps a bonus, a major Christmas bonus. you half your salary for the year he gives you as a Christmas bonus. And you don't bother to mention it to him, you don't thank him for it or her for it, uh, you just carry on as per, you know, as if you had it coming to you. How's your boss going to view that? Can you imagine ever doing any of those things with your boss in your workplace? Well, that's the sort of the litmus paper test which is sort of being applied here uh, with the governor example. Now, if, you've, um, if these examples have got you to perhaps honestly reflect on your life a bit for a few minutes, um, we'll realise that often, at least my service of God and probably your service of God, like the ancient Israelites, uh, sometimes leaves a little bit to be desired, sometimes it's pretty lame and sometimes it's utterly inadequate. But fortunately for us, even if our sacrifices we make for God are pretty ordinary, a sacrifice has been made for us which is absolutely adequate. You see, Jesus' sacrifice in our place was the perfect sacrifice uh, which was made. Now, in the New Testament, if you read the book of Romans, from Romans chapter 1 through to chapter 8, it describes in great detail the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the fact that we've all fallen short of God's glory, we're under God's um, judgment, but God in His love provides a solution. And so we read in Romans 5, 8, for example, that God demonstrates His love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we receive that gift by asking Jesus to forgive us and saying we want to follow Him, the Bible assures us that we are forgiven, we are adopted into God's family, God will promise us power, peace and purpose for this life, we can look forward to eternal life in the next and while we're living this life, God will give us the Holy Spirit to help us live the Christian life and we can give God our best. Now, having unpacked this message in Romans 1 to 8, we get to Romans 12, which says, okay, in the light of that, Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, yeah, referring back to the Gospel, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's basically saying, as Christians, let's give God our best. Now, can I say that thanks to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, our pretty average sacrifices aren't good enough, but Jesus makes the perfect sacrifice for us and so then, with God's Spirit, we do our best to make our life a sacrifice to God, to give our best to God, okay? Now, can I make a, a point here which is always worth making? We don't try and give our best to God so that we can become a Christian, we give our best to God if we are a Christian. You see, we don't get saved by being a good person, we get saved by Jesus, then as saved people, we then seek to live good lives. Now, uh, let me slightly simplify a story my wife told me about Scripture teaching, but it's roughly this. She taught a Scripture class uh, for a year or so, or half a year or a term, and she was saying, remember, we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by receiving what Jesus has done for us. You know, next week, she probably said the same thing, we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by receiving what Jesus has done for us, right? Week after week. At the end of the year, or you know, near the end of term, she said to the class, so how are we saved? Oh, by being a good person, they said, right? She kept saying it, but they weren't 
getting it. We are not saved by being a good person, we are saved by receiving what Jesus has done for us. Now, it's not just little kids in Sunday school classes as well, because sometimes one finds, in my position, that when people are much older and they're getting closer to dying, they sometimes think, oh, I don't know whether I've been good enough for God, right? And these are people who've been sitting in churches for a long period of time. Now, in one sense, it is quite humble of them to say that, because when you get older, you tend to realise you've probably made a few mistakes in your life. But they, they, what I try to reassure them of is that we, maybe you did make mistakes, but we're not safe by being good people. We're safe by receiving what Jesus has done for us. So, I guess my question to you is tonight, uh, have you received that? Have you, at some point in your life, asked Jesus to forgive you and said you wanted to follow Him? Because if you'd done that, you are saved. And you will make mistakes in life and your best for God will sometimes be your fifth best. But if we're seeking to follow, if we've, rep- we've asked Jesus to forgive us and we're seeking to follow Him, God has saved us and we then just do our best to give God our best. Let me conclude. Why don't we learn the lessons of biblical history and not make the same mistake as the ancient Israelites? You see, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, they needed to be reminded that they were loved by God. And so then in 1, 6 to 2, 9, they needed to learn that they needed to then give God their best. So my big idea for today's passage is, if we're Christians, as loved people, let's give God our best. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would understand this passage about your love for us and we pray that we would also understand the passage and then the value of seeking to give you our best as saved people. Lord, we pray that we would remember that, take that to heart, believe it and seek to live it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.